This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. Investigative conversations about issues that impact our lives. Be curious. Friday mornings at 9 a.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. Good morning to you all. Uh, this is indeed Brooke Spector, and we are here with the Deep Dive. Uh, and we cover topics of current interests, current events, and occasionally uh, a bit of fun. Uh, today we are going to have a special conversation with the spokesperson and secret- second secretary of the Russian Embassy in South Africa, Alexander Arifiev. I hope I pronounced that surname properly. Arifiev or Arifev? And we welcome you to uh, join us on our conversation today on the deep dive. Alexander, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you for Great. inviting me. It, it's oh. Arifiev. Great stuff. I see. I saw an emblem and I saw the words Russian embassy, but I didn't see a face. So I worried for a second. No problem. Here I am. Oh, good. Okay. There you are. In a very large, very spacious office, it looks like. You have enough room there to have, have a formal dance performance. Well, it's not my office. So I'm not sure how, how I'm able to use it. Okay. Well, let, let, let's use it for our conversation at least. So. Alrighty. I have a question. Uh, before we get into the, into the real substance of things, my wife called my attention to something that she heard on the news yesterday, uh, mm-hmm. that your government is now offering special awards, uh, to, uh, families, especially to mothers, if they have 10 children to deal with uh, population issues, I assume. Is is, is that true? Uh, can that really? I, I remember years and years ago, perhaps even before uh, you were born, there were awards given to um, mothers of multiple children, uh, but that was a long time ago. Is this Is this now back in policy? Well, uh, I'm not exactly aware of the, of the law or legislation you, you talk about, uh, about the awards, but well, you're right by saying that this is a tradition in Russia because, well, the, the mothers who gave birth to multiple children are indeed awarded in our state. It used to be so in the Soviet era and we still keep the state decorations, uh, for, for these women, uh, because, uh, family is one of the top, if not the top value of the Russian society. And well, this, the situation here just shows it. <laughs> One of the many manifestations of that. Yeah, ten children is a lot. Uh, I, I, well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's ten. Sorry, I'm not just not aware of the of the details of the of the legislation. No problem. I had to ask. I mean, once it was pointed out to me, I thought this was the perfect way to find out the answer to this question. Oh, um, sorry to disappoint. No, no. I, I mean, it'll, it'll give me a chance to look at something else later on. Um, l- let me just add also that uh, to, to put you uh, in the picture, perhaps my my late grandfather many many years ago came from the the region around Odessa, uh, mm. and he'd been drafted into the old Tsarist army to serve during the Russo-Japanese War, and. Mm-hmm. In, in an in an ins, in an insightful moment, he realized this was not a good plan, and so he uh, he he deserted from the army, went to a port in Western Europe, got to the United States, 
and became a successful business contractor instead. It was, a, I think, a good decision on his part because that was a bad war. But uh, that leads me to more serious questions. What? How would you judge the state of Russian-South African relations at this at this point? Uh, how would you how would you characterize the larger state of those relationships? Well, that, that was a big leap uh, from from the story from uh, Russo-Japanese War to Russia-South African relations. Well, uh, I can say that well, the Russian-South African relations uh, will just go on developing. Because, well, uh, our relations didn't start, well, metaphorically speaking, yesterday. We enjoy the long-standing friendly relations uh, with, with our South African friends. Well, uh, my country, the, the USSR, uh, made a vast contribution to the liberation struggle and struggle about, against apartheid. Uh, so we built our relations on the huge historical background, and it's still uh, going forward. Uh, especially in the light of uh, that we both the BRICS members and well, so, well, some time ago BRICS is well evidently was on the front pages of the media since uh, well new perspective uh, with new countries joining BRICS uh, are now opening for for this uh, association. Uh, so well, we, we hope that uh, our relations will just go on developing on the mutual, on the basis of mutual benefit and mutual respect. So, well, that's, you know, that, that's a good theoretical background, but, uh, realistically, how much, uh, investment from Russia is there in South Africa relative to other countries or from South Africa into Russia? I mean, is it, uh, how would you characterize it? Uh, is it, uh, as big as what size from another country, perhaps? Well, it depends on the country uh, that we are comparing it to. But you, you see, well, these are digits are digits. Uh, we, it's, it's not the, well, if they're relatively, if they're relatively big or they're relatively small, it doesn't matter because we're still going to develop those relations regardless of what digits are now in terms of investment or economic input. Sorry, I'm not giving you the exact digits once again, because I think you should address this question to our trade mission, uh, in South Africa. They, they are way better instructed in this and way better informed than I am. Well, let's, let's pursue this a little bit in the absence of specific numbers. Uh, I gather they're actually quite low, but never mind. If, if I were, if, for example, I were a potential Russian investor in looking at South Africa, what difficulties might I worry about uh, if I were considering placing an investment here? Uh, do people uh, in your mission do you consider the questions of electricity delivery or crime or some of the other issues? Do you consider these as impediments? Uh, well, it's hard to talk uh, to talk on behalf of everyone. Uh, well, getting familiarized with the country you're about, you're about to invest in is well, is a right move. As I said, I can't speak on on behalf of everyone, so it's just natural way of things that to get familiarized with this or that country. I've never heard any, my, my, I myself personally, I've never heard any complaints coming from Russian business or whatsoever. So it's just, well, as far as my knowledge goes in, in this, in this economic issues. 
Well, I ask that because it's a fairly common complaint. The investors and business people uh, from all over the the planet who are operating in South Africa, they fairly routinely uh, are concerned with questions of crime or court or uh, quality of governance or delivery of electricity. And I just wondered if 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 your if uh, your countrymen and women who might invest in this part of the world, how they might have thought. But let's broaden this out even further. As a spokesman for your government in South Africa, what how would you describe uh, your country's major challenges in Africa and operating in Africa? How would you how would you characterize those those challenges or those difficulties? Well, I wouldn't start from challenges and difficulties for one part, uh, because well, Russia enjoys relations not not just with separate countries but with continent as uh, as a whole. And uh, well, we have initiatives uh, already in in place that uh, will help further strengthen our ties, both economically, financially. Uh, culturally, you name it. Well, first of all, uh, the South Africa summit, where they had the inaugural, the first one, and the second one is, um, is well, just around the corner. And we also established the Association of Economic Cooperation with African countries as one of the outcomes of the, of the summit. So, uh, we Russians, we do not concentrate on fi- or fixate too much on challenges and difficulties. We rather look at opportunities. Uh, so we we welcome every African state who is ready to cooperate with us, and we're ready to cooperate with all African states uh, on e- on basis of equality and uh, mutual respect and benefit. So we we would rather keep to the positive agenda and positive attitude towards this. So difficulties are never king of the ball for us. We're speaking with Alexander Arifiev, spokesperson and the second secretary at the Russian embassy in South Africa. But we'll come back to to the rest of our conversation. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is indeed Brooke Spector, and this is also the Deep Dive, and we're having a conversation with Alexander Arifiev, who is the spokesperson and second second secretary at the Russian Embassy in South Africa. Thank you for joining, and let let me turn to some news that we picked up just the other day. According to press reports, uh, your defense uh, minister, General uh, Shiogu, announced that that there was that uh, he had his government had a willingness well your government too obviously had a willingness or a, an interest in selling or giving uh new high tech military equipment to cooperating african and other states around the world uh was that an accurate report and uh, if so what kind of equipment might that be well again i'm not representing russian military minister of defense or russian military for that matter I can only say that, uh, well, it, it has been discussed, but again, as a natural way of things, because, well, cooperation in the field of security is one of the many uh, tracks that Russia is willing to cooperate with African states if they uh, demonstrate interest in that. So I, I, that, that's basically all I can say with regards to, the, to this report. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, you know, military... 
military weaponry uh, is a, as I understand the numbers, a, a fairly significant export item uh, by your nation. I'm trying to get a handle on the kinds of equipment, the new equipment that might be rolled out, but uh, perhaps we can talk again later on, on that question. But more generally, how much, how much assistance, foreign assistance does Russia provide to uh, African nations? Uh, do you have any way of, of gauging that? I mean, it, obviously it's, it's significant for some and less so for others, but, uh, c- can you provide some sort of parameters for us for that? Uh, you mean the, the volume of uh, Russian military assistance towards Africa? Well, military assistance and economic assistance, uh, broadly speaking, uh, we'll put aside the Wagner group for the, for the moment, uh, because I don't think they count in those numbers. But, um, can you give us some sort of general, uh, ballpark figure on this or a sense of the, of the commitment to it? Well, uh, I can say that it's some some sort of special commitment, like we're deliberately like pushing this uh, line forward. Uh, again, it's always based on mutual interest and, and mutual benefit for, of both sides. So, uh, well, I've seen the reports in the media as well that uh, the numbers are quite significant. Uh, and well, Russia is an important uh, partner of Africa in terms of security, uh, which is true. It's still, It's reported in Russian media as well. So I, I could describe it as significant uh, in, in, in the broad sense. But again, uh, you, you, I think you better ask this question to the military guys. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a representative of Ministry of Defense, and I don't have the digits again. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, no, being a spokesperson for an embassy always gets you these kinds of questions. I, 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 you know, it, it's always one of those things where you, questions come from every direction and Sometimes yeah, I know, I know, but, uh, you know, the, the best way to answer them, if, if you don't know, you better see, you, you don't know, uh, otherwise just making things up, yeah, not making, making fake news, you know. Yeah, making them up generally creates news too, that's also true. Now, look, in the last week or so, uh, the South African Defense Minister, uh, Tandi Modise, visited your country, joined a conference uh, with uh, a group of other nations, and I believe gave a keynote address to that conference on the 16th, so that'd be, what, three days ago. Um, did she have bilateral meetings with your defense ministry uh, or perhaps with your president? Uh, and what was, what was the range of the topics that they may have talked about? Well, the, as far as my knowledge goes, they had the meeting with the Russian defense minister, General Shoigu, and we, the, our minister of defense has a press release, uh, that will covered basically all, all the topics. So if I might advertise a little bit, you can just follow us on social media. We posted it in, uh, in our Twitter account. So please follow the link and you'll get all the info from, from, from the, from the meeting. I have a nice photo, by the way. I, I'm not, I must confess, I'm not a Twitterati. Uh, I, Facebook, email. Neither am I, but well, we'll, we'll post on Facebook, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I figure I'm drowning in, in, in information as it is. Twitter would just, uh, would just push yeah, me over the Yeah, yeah. Twitter can be overwhelming at times, but no worries, we'll post it from Facebook, <laughs> no problem. Please. Um, mm-hmm. can, can you describe for me, uh, 
the kind of military or to military or defense to defense cooperation already exists. Can you give it? Um, do you have joint military exercises, war games, tabletop war games, uh, or is this something that's planned or contemplated or thought about for the future? I, I, I know there are no Russian bases in South Africa, and conversely, there are no South African bases in Russia. But uh, what kind of cooperation is there or might there be, should we be looking forward to in the future? Well, I can give you a couple of examples of military cooperation. Like we, from the past years, we had the naval drills uh, with, with the Chinese and our South African friends in, in the vicinity of Cape Town. And we also had our strategic bomber aircraft landing in, in South Africa. I believe it was last year or two years ago. So uh, different branches of our forces, of our, of our defense forces, cooperate with each other uh, in their, uh, you know, in their specific ways. And Russia is hosting um, also the, the the army games. Uh, we, we are currently underway, one of them, with various countries. I'm not speaking specific here. Uh, which countries do we uh, cooperate in these war games? But they are open for everyone. Again, Russia is, is an open country. Russia is willing to cooperate with everyone who's willing to cooperate on an equal basis. Uh, so that's the, the general uh, principle I wanted to you know, outline. So Russia is hosting uh, a lot of exercises. Uh, well, we, we had exercises with Chinese and we hosting the, the army games so that we could just measure our capabilities, our, our skill. I mean, not just our as Russian military, but uh, the skill of other militaries around the globe in the friendliest way possible, just in in, in the competition. So there are a lot of formats of, of cooperation. It will take us hours to speak about every one, every single one of them. So there are so, lots of but 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 the but the I, I can I can I can say that just military cooperation is one of the many tracks, and we're just well. If the interest arises, we just well we respond to that interest from coming from our friends and partners. I'm going to resist the urge to ask whether your military's operations in Ukraine constitute a military exercise. We'll get to that later. But let me let me drop back a bit to get a sense of the the, the Russian idea of uh, world order. Uh, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember what the Soviet era idea of world order was, and I think it's rather different then than it is now. What is uh, your country's goal, vision, idea of the optimum world order, uh, the way things should be? How would you describe it? Well, I'll describe it as, well, the top value of this world is equality. Because, uh, well, what Russia wants to see around the globe is the equal world order, which, which we call, which we describe as a multipolar world. So that the, all the countries will address the issues, uh, with no extra pressure coming from wherever it may come. So we, we resolve the issues on, on equal basis with no, with no pressure and everyone treated equal as it should be. Because, well, it, it always comes from the, our, our World War II experience. We suffered a great lot to defeat Nazism. Uh, we, our nation lost 27 million, almost 27 million of its citizens. It's a huge sacrifice. So, and we believe that the equal world order where the issues could be resolved, uh, in equal and respectful way 
that is the best outcome our civilization civilization can possibly get. So, yeah, I'll put uh, as a cornerstone, I'll put equality and respect. Yeah. I, I, I think we have to be a little careful when we talk about World War II uh, because of, of a significant number, millions of people suffered greatly in, in territories that are now no longer part of the Soviet Union, that are separate independent countries. Uh, and I think that burden was was shared. I, I, I don't have the precise numbers in front of me, but uh, I do know that uh, that Ukraine. No, no, I, I never I no, I never said that uh, Russians don't value the input of other Soviet nations that were, were formerly part of Soviet Union. No, don't get me wrong. No, I understand. Uh, I didn't. I'm yeah. not putting words in your mouth. I'm just I'm offering the clarification for listeners. Well, I well, let's count uh, as I did the same. <laughs> but let's, uh, we don't have any choice, really. I think we're going to have to talk about uh, the uh, your nation's invasion of a neighboring country, Ukraine. Uh, I know there are different words being used to describe this invasion, but uh, for my purposes, I'll stick with invasion, uh, even if you use a, a military operation of a special type or words to that effect. What, what is your nation's strategic goal in this conflict? What, what is it you expect to see come out of that conflict? Well, the objectives of the special military operation remain the same. These are denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine. So we'll this is our, what, what our president said, what our foreign minister said. So the objectives remain the same. So it's denazification and demilitarization. Because the problem was not that Ukraine, as it is, posed threat to Russia. No. But Ukraine's involvement with NATO, close involvement with NATO, that's what posed the threat. Because moving the NATO's military infrastructure closer to our border posed an imminent threat to Russia's security. And Russia tried its best to address this issue. Let me remind you of the uh, draft proposals of security agreements on of December 2021. We wanted, we exhausted every single opportunity to resolve this issue peacefully. But due to arrogance of the West, well, pardon me, but that that's true. Due to arrogance of the West and complete disrespect to Russia's military concerns, Russia had to respond somehow because uh, the threat was imminent. And uh, speaking of Donbass region, for eight years, Kiev regime has been killing, slaughtering civilians, including children, women, elderly people. And the West, or EU notably, and Washington as well, was to, were turning a blind eye on this. They were killing Russians, killing Russian populations, killing Ukrainians even. But instead of condemning these acts, instead of... It is not secret that the Western capitals have influence on Kiev. Instead of using that influence to make Kiev adhere and actually implement the Minsk agreements, which is Ukraine is a side to, was a side to, instead of doing this, the West preferred to indulge Kiev's war crimes, Kiev's aggression against its own population, and mass killings. I believe it all it all could be summed up uh, with uh, Olaf Scholz, uh, the German Chancellor, when uh, presidents said that the events in Donbass region were uh, genocide. He said it was ridiculous or laughable. I can I don't speak German. I can recreate that scene. So or laughable or ridiculous. Well, for us, Nazism is nothing laughable. 
and nothing ridiculous. And mass slaughtering of people is nothing ridiculous and nothing uh, that can be laughed at. Alexander, I, I, I don't know where this idea of the neo-Nazis in Ukraine came from. And I've read. I'll tell you where it came from. Alexander, let me finish my question, please. Um, and then you'll get your chance to answer. But, but there, there is no real evidence that there are Nazi war, Nazi control in Ukraine, Nazi troops. They don't exist. That what, what you may point to as neo-Nazi efforts uh, are just laughable. Uh, and you now you may go right, go right ahead and provide whatever proof you may like. You you have a right to answer my question, but you're going to have to prove that rather than simply quote somebody who quoted somebody else who quoted somebody else. All right. I'm not going to quote somebody else who quoted somebody else, as you put it. Uh, you can just Google the pictures of the torch processions in honor of uh, Nazi World War II collaborators held in Kiev under protection of police. This is a state-supported policy. And Kraken Battalion and Nazis, Azov Battalion and Nazis. And uh, Ukraine is the only European country that had Nazi units incorporated in their armed forces, as if it somehow justifies that. A lot of uh, landmarks, as landmarks, I mean uh, streets, uh, and other geographic names, which were originally given in honor of the Soviet-era uh, heroes who liberated Soviet Ukraine from Nazis, are now renamed in honor of Nazi World War II collaborators, notably Roman Shuhevich and Stepan Bandera. These two and their accomplices, uh, they, they have committed heinous, heinous crimes during World War II, such as Volhynia Massacre, that took lives of over 50 thousand people, innocent people. And these people are now, I mean, Bandera and Shuhevich, Nazi collaborators, are now revered in Ukraine. There are streets named in there, uh, named after them. Uh, and uh, the Nazi sim- symbols and Nazi insignias are not even banned by law in Ukraine. In contrast to Soviet symbols, which are outlawed completely, including the Red Star, uh, Hammer and Sickle, and so on and so forth. So uh, the pictures in, on the internet, it can be Googled in two minutes that, uh, well, they, they are, that there are commemorative events taking place uh, across Ukraine in honor of Nazi collaborators. So this is Nazi. And there are a lot of other manifestations like a recent initiative, if I put it that way, initiative by uh, President Zelensky that, uh, to ban visas to all Russians. This is racism. And Nazism, as pure as you can possibly get, because Russians, what he proposed is to ban visas to Russians just because they're Russians. Uniquely, uniquely, let let me, let me me finish, please. Let me, let me finish, please. No, it's not different. It's just. I'm going to have to take a station break. Just one sec, please. We'll come right back. I have to do a station break. Uh, No problem. This is the deep dive with Brooks Spector. And good morning, and we're back with The Deep Dive, and I'm Brooke Spector, and our guest today is Alexander Ardifiev, who is the spokesman for the Russian embassy in South Africa and second secretary in that embassy. Before we, before we went to an ad break, uh, we were having a little bit of a joust over 
the question of quote-unquote Nazism. Uh, and you mentioned two things which got my attention. One was the, was your outrage that the Ukrainians had removed symbols of, of the Soviet Union, hammer and sickle and renamed streets. I think if you look at Eastern Europe generally, you will find that that has been a true phenomena across many nations. Uh, but point two, uh, you mentioned the name of, of a Mr. Bandera. And I've read a fair amount of your Ukrainian history and Bandera uh, may have had his flaws, and I'm not going to dispute that, but the Ukrainians as a nation saw him as a patriot against the reimposition of the, the old Soviet Union, and that's a matter of historical record as well. His, historians judge these things, but individual nations pick and choose who they're going to celebrate and commemorate over time, given circumstances, I, you will, if you live in South Africa, and you'll note that there's been a constant renaming of streets and buildings and even cities and towns, and that's a function of a changing view of the history of the nation as well. But let's uh, let's let's turn to a, a another question, uh, or or a continuation of this question of uh, your country's strategic goals in this war. Uh, you've mentioned denazification and neutrality uh, and the, uh, the the implicit uh, uh, movement of NATO toward your borders. You have noticed, I think, that two historically neutral nations, that is Sweden and Norway, sorry, Sweden and Finland, beg your pardon, both elected after the invasion to join NATO doubling the border between NATO nations and uh, Russia. Uh, that was a strategic miscalculation, do you think? Uh, no, I'll answer that question, but uh, may I please uh, return quickly to the Stepan Bandera issue. I, I'll have to disagree, Mr. Spector, with description of flaws. Slaughtering of innocent people is not a flaw. It's a crime. And you can talk to Poland with regards to Stepan Bandera, and they will tell you a lot of great things about this hero that's now revered in Ukraine. I'm using the quote marks for the listeners. I'm using quote marks surrounding the word hero. This is a Nazi collaborator. And if we say that people are free to choose who they rever, that we are now glorifying and justifying Nazism. This cannot stand with Russia. Russia will never get to that. As I said earlier, we paid a huge price, including Ukrainians. We paid a huge price defeating Nazism and justifying it and glorifying it will not stand. Not in a million years. And now getting back to your question with the miscalculation, well, sort of thing with uh, Sweden and Finland. Well, Sweden and Finland, uh, well, they decided that that's best uh, for, for their countries. That's what their government's decisions. Well, and I don't, I don't, I don't say, I don't think it's miscalculation. Well, I'm not calculating the, our Russian entire foreign policy. Well, for good, <laughs> for worse or no, for that's, better. That, that's good of you to say that. Not yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For, for worse or for the better. I'm, I'm not doing this. Uh, well, no, it's just the respective decision uh, and the outcomes of uh, decisions are yet to be revealed. So not every political or historic decision are evident right off the bat. So we'll see how the what, what the time will tell us and how the situation evolves. Well, I mean, part of the problem, of course, is 
that um, your, your your leadership uh, in back in Russia made a great point of arguing that the, that the NATO forces were somehow encroaching on Russia. Now, for better or worse, there will be uh, military exercises and cooperation with nation with nations that now have uh, something on the order of 800 extra miles of common border uh, with Russia. And those, the armies of those two nations, the military forces are strong and well drilled and, uh, e- extremely competent. Uh, I, in a strategic sense, now I'm, I'm asking you to make a, to make a judgment, not on behalf of your entire foreign ministry. It's okay. But do you think that maybe that was not the best outcome for your country in at the time when a war is actually taking place to gain more opponents? Well, Na- Finland and Sweden are not NATO members yet. Well, correct me. Uh, they're not yet. Well, uh, so let's say as of today, uh, they're not NATO members yet. And we don't know when they will be NATO members. Well, no, nobody could tell that for sure. Well, I think that, well, NATO doesn't bring stability anywhere it goes. Because I can't, I can finally find, hardly find an example when, when NATO ever brought stability to any region whatsoever. Look what happened to Yugoslavia. Look what happened to Libya with direct NATO involvement. This is ruination of statehood. So expansion of NATO doesn't bring stability. That's what I can say. Regardless of where the conflicts are imminent now, anywhere in, on, on the globe now. So regardless of there is conflict or there's no conflict, Expansion of NATO doesn't bring stability because it's an aggressive block, regardless how many times they repeat that they're defensive. There's nothing defensive about NATO because you can't expand defensively. Uh, well, when it comes to NATO, because you just, you know, uh, encroaching, as you, you put it correctly, encroaching Russia with NATO. And we see it as a threat. And NATO knows that very well. But instead of uh, easing the tensions, they just put more tensions and put oil on flames. How does that bring stability is, well, honestly, beyond me. Alexander, uh, I'm going to have to take another station break. Uh, we're speaking with Alexander Arifiev, who is the spokesperson for the Russian embassy in South Africa. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We're back. The studio, well, actually, we're, we're back in my kitchen and the studio and Alexander Arifiev's offices in the Russian embassy in Pretoria, three different places, the miracle of modern communication. This is Brooke Spector with the deep dive, and we have just a few minutes left. And so I, I just want to draw a, 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 a big question for you. What is the Russian government going to demand of the Ukrainian government in order to end the war, to end the invasion, to bring the troops back. What specific positions do does your government insist on uh, before such things happen? Well, that's a matter of negotiations, and we are getting ahead of ourselves, I believe, here, I'm afraid. Uh, so the negotiations have yet to, be, yet to start. And as you may recall, there were negotiations between the Russian and Ukrainian side, but Ukrainian side completely sabotaged uh, everything uh, that has been, well, 
even the slightest achievements of those negotiations were completely thrashed uh, by by the Ukrainian side. Now, I'm afraid it's a bit too early to talk about this uh, because, well, the well, the Ukrainians are not negotiable, and President Zelensky is evidently heavily influenced by the Western capitals who have no zero intention of ending the conflict in diplomatic way. Instead, it would rather prolong the conflict. So, uh, pardon me, I'm still quoting someone, but I'll, I'll quote the U.S. Senator uh, Lindsey Graham, who said that we, I, I, I like the way we're, we're, we're here on now, because with all the support we, we provide for the key, if it's not accurate quote, I just didn't write it out for me, when we're helping, since we're helping Ukraine financially and militarily, they will fight till the last, Ukraine, till the last man. That's the objective. To, to, ma- to make Ukrainians bleed out, to make them fight till the last man. And since the Kiev regime, I'm, I'm referring to the Kiev, the government in Kiev, are now heavily influenced by the West, who has zero intention of ending the conflict, they will be forcing the Ukrainians to fight. So since the situation is still intact, it's a bit too early to speak about the di- di- diplomatic uh, negotiations. I'd simply remind you, you might want to find a better quote because uh, Lindsey Graham doesn't speak for the U.S. government. Yes, last, but last uh, very well. I'll, I'll give you a quote from the from the Belgium. We, we have to move on. We have one. I have one last thing I want to. I'm sorry. Beg your pardon. Uh, j- just just make me. I'll, I'll just make my short statement and we'll f- f- follow on. So uh, I'm not running short of quotes of the Western no, officials. I'm sure. Uh, I see you saying, saying that the war will go on. So, yeah, uh, beg your pardon. No, uh, uh, you, you say negotiations were impossible. I, I just want you to recall that there was, in fact, uh, a successful, acrimonious, difficult, but successful negotiation between three, four parties, actually, your government, the Ukrainian government, government of Turkey and the United Nations, to arrange for the shipment of grain from Ukrainian ports, Odessa, among others, to a world that is in desperate need of that uh, grain. Uh, and I'm going, because we're, we're just about out of time, I'll give you the last 30 seconds to wrap up your view, your perspective, your, uh, your comments, but I have to hold you to that. Uh, well, as a, as a my wrap up comment, uh, I would just like to, well, Follow your line of thought with, with all this uh, negotiations with the with the Ukrainian grain. Well, uh, any tangible result that's achieved in a diplomatic way is something that should be valued. There can be no doubt about it. Uh, yet that uh, well, the world in need is still in need, unfortunately, because well, even New York Times reported that uh, well, majority of those ships are going anywhere except for the countries that actually need, except for the one ship that the media is now discussing, this brave commander. There was just only one ship so far. We can only hope that there will be more ships coming because hunger it is an is acute problem across the globe and it must be resolved with no political involvement and no uh, political pre preconditions, so to say. Uh, so yes, diplomacy is the best way, is still the best way, and we can only hope that well, the Kiev regime uh, will... We'll see the, the things the way we the way we, we see it. I mean, in terms of the diplomatic solution. Okay, I'm going to have to draw a line through it at this point. I, I appreciate your time and your your participation and your openness and willingness. We've been speaking with Alexander Arifiev, who is the press spokesman for the Russian embassy and second second secretary 
for that embassy. Uh, it's been um, a vigorous conversation with you, and I appreciate your your candor and your willingness to participate in a, in a give and take. This is Brooke Spector from uh, High FM and the Deep Dive, and we'll be back with you again next week at this time, 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock in the morning, for another edition of our Deep Dive.